Now, this question of God's existence, uh, we, can, we quote the book of Genesis, uh, and in America, the book of Genesis is not quoted by theologians or philosophers or whatever. It took our dear astronauts to do it. They, they seem to believe in God. Uh, when they came on the moon, they said, in the beginning, God. And they were cheered by the faithful, but of course the American Civil Liberties Union and all the professors jeered them that they contaminated this splendid scientific achievement with this hokum about God. But Genesis says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And that, of course, is the first article of faith. I believe in God the Creator. And as Monsignor Cavan of America says, this is the most disputed article in the creed. If you can agree about that God exists, the creator God exists, the personal creator God exists, well, then the rest is only, are only accessories. I mean, the God, the real problem, all these other, no miracle is hard to believe if God exists. Nor is any revelation from outer space hard to believe if God exists. So this is the great disputed thing. And I simply would, would sum up now the real alternative, which is not sharply enough known. Nobody seems to care about this alternative. Most faculties of theology don't seem to, they don't seem to think this is important enough. They're always playing around with subordinate details or trying to fit in one theory with another. But it is a decisive difference. C.S. Lewis, again, in this book, Miracles, understands it. By the way, uh, that's my uh, gesture toward ecumenism. I use his books as textbooks at Fordham. They don't know it, of course. I use plain wrapping to get it into the university. But Lewis, despite his being understandable, is a great philosopher. That's his liability, of course. Because people understand him, he can't be deep. He, he, he should have been a German mumbling, unintelligible things, and then we would credit him with genius. Uh, but that book, Miracles, could do more for the wavering faith of teenagers who have been exposed to modern catechetics than anything I ever know. Lewis can give us the sanity, at least, of objective truth and of serious reasoning about God instead of slogans, which we have so much. Now, the option, therefore, is this, that by God we mean an uncreated, eternal being. Uncreated, eternal being. A being that necessarily exists. The, I claim, the key property of God, is, philosophically speaking, is necessity of being. He cannot not be. That's the real meaning of the Thomistic thesis, that God's essence is existence. I don't like that formulation because it misses the strength of it. The real formulation should be, God is such a person that he must needs be. He cannot not be. There's not the slightest chance that he should not have been. And this is the basic intuition of God, which we even have to have if we are to accept God by faith. But if the preacher comes and tells us that the great Father God made the world, somehow or other we have to be in possession of that concept of necessary being if we are to ascend to the preacher or to the gospel or whatever. We then say that this creator God wills that, that we be, that we're not asking about the mechanism of creation, 
But we're saying from all eternity, a personal, necessarily existing God exists in the present tense. And that's through his will, beings come into being from nothing. From the power of God, we are summoned into being, whether matter or, or vegetables or human persons or angels or whatever. The creation, we say, is everything but God. And the creation is dependent being, temporal being the creation we know not necessarily all creation, but the world as we know it, is a created temporal being. It need not exist. That's the most important point for us to see from a philosophical point of view, that we tremble on the knife edge of nothingness. That if it were not for the will of God, we could not exist one second tomorrow. And that has been lost for the 20th century. Most of us strut through the world as if we are forever and everything is forever and that we somehow possess within ourselves tomorrow's breath, whereas we don't even have the next second's breath. Here I like Descartes, who is much maligned, I think, unfairly. I think he's a great philosopher of God. And in one of his works, he said that he noted that we need God as much to conserve being as to create being. So that at any moment, just because the beings of this universe are contingent, are nervously trembling on this knife edge of nothingness, at this moment God must exist, the necessary being must exist. Some people think you only need God to start it off, and then God could retire or die, and the, and the universe will go on. Not so. You know, there's a, a marvelous book which I keep mentioning, hoping I have a rich benefactor in the audience who will republish it. It is by a Jesuit, a Catholic Jesuit, uh, Father, it, it is uh, Job the Man Speaks with God by Peter Lippert. He died about 40 years ago in Germany. The book was translated by an, uh, an American, uh, Schuster, and it's been out of print for 20 years. That's one of the finest contemporary books of a man addressing God in an existential way. He, he suffers the evils of existence, but at all points he comes back to the reality of God and he has some of the greatest imagery I've ever seen about dependent beings. Any retreat master who mastered Lippert's book would be infinitely better for it. And one one uh, uh, soliloquy with God, if you will, or dialogue with God. He said, Thou art an ocean, an infinite ocean, and thou dost give us this drop of being, this single drop of being. That's a beautiful image. And he says, Oh, if that drop should cease, if ever, if ever you denied us that drop of being, we'd vanish. And so would the world. Now, this kind of thinking is absolutely necessary for us to appreciate what the Bible means by God, what any theist means by God. We don't mean some vague point of light, some force, some cosmic force who's, who's struggling to be conscious of himself in some never-never land of the future thanks to all this becoming stupidity. That's German philosophy. Well, that's good, maybe, but it's not, it's not true. That if, if you're going to be an atheist, be an honorable atheist. Deny my God. 
If, if the only thing you mean by your atheism is you're denying all men in the sky or forces and all that, well, I, I don't really care about it. I mean, be my guest. You still haven't, haven't proved yourself my enemy because what you really have to be to be an atheist is to say there's no necessary being, no personal creator God, no, no source of all value and, and, and existence. And then you're an atheist. Now, this concept that I've quickly sketched for God is the basis for all religion, certainly for the true religion, let's put it that way, that we acknowledge God as creator and Lord. We grasp the perfections of God philosophically to a certain extent. Plato got much closer to the perfections of God than any other pagan philosopher in his sublime uh, transcendent theory, even though he did not understand the personality of God, he understood the absolute transcendence of moral good. Also, uh, so we say that uh, religion grasps the creator God, religion grasps the perfections of God, especially the moral perfections of God, and then the work of religion is to praise God. And we praise him and thank him for his glory, his justice, his beauty, his holiness. And this is my point of view, as it were, so that if I wanted to be immune from what I think to be secondary questions, this is what I would go, whether in a philosophy hall or in a pulpit, using faith or reason as the situation dictated, and I would insist on the truth of this point as against what? As against atheism, under any of its guises, atheism denies this God, and atheism substitutes something else. Today it's matter. Matter is somehow a, a lowly matter, which the chemist studies in his test tube and, and, and the mechanic calculates its acceleration, but we are somehow told that this matter is the creative principle, if you give it enough time. Matter and time uh, are the two alternatives, really, to this uh, concept of God that I've just noted. And uh, my dear friend, Father Michelli, a great Jesuit priest uh, from New York, he's at the Gregorian Institute, he wrote a brilliant book called The Gods of Atheism, very shrewd title, in which he showed that anytime you deny the true God, you don't end up with no God, you end up with your atheistic God, whether it's matter or society or the elite or, or the proletariat or whatever. And those are the great alternatives. But scientifically speaking, in this question of the explanation of the cosmos, either you have the creator God, as already suggested in Genesis and as quickly developed by myself, or you have this materialism in its metaphysical sense, that matter alone exists or has existed, and that there is no reason, no person, no purpose in matter. Matter does not hide little God. That would be cheating. If you put God inside matter in an embryonic form, no, that's cheating. You want to be a serious materialist. Matter is matter. It's clouds of dust, of molecules, or whatever. And then, by chance and natural selection, you're going to get the cosmos you're going to get this incredibly harmonious uh, universe which we are discovering parts of, of every day. Now, therefore, I was right, after all, that this is the important question. 
That's the really important question of the last hundred years. Does this God exist or are the materialists right? That's the important question. And as I said, it's not really important whether if God exists, he snapped his fingers, as it were, or spoke, and everything came out of this wonderland of his creative power, or he, he, he delayed things and simply made matter, and then matter... Uh, in, in this endless restlessness, matter tried billions of combinations before coming up with something that, that survived an accident of environment or whatever. That's not important. Now, I was therefore right, but I was not right. That technically I'm right, formally I'm right, that if we lived in a world of reason, and not a world of psychologically conditioned complexes and the like, that would be sufficient. We would simply say to the evolutionists and the scientific creationists, look, just solve the problem over there however best you can. Let the Protestants debate the, the Huxleys, scientifically speaking. Let's get on, though, with religion, with truth, with God. Because we know God exists, or if you don't think God exists, let us honorably fight philosophically, which is the only way about God. There's no scientific experiment. Please agree on this. There's no scientific experiment which in any way can throw any light on whether God exists or not. So don't, don't tell me science has disproved God. It's either philosophy or nothing. It wouldn't be revelation. Are you going to get a revelation from somebody that God doesn't exist? You could get a revelation from God that God does exist, but if you say God doesn't exist, it's because you are such a great epistemologist. You are such a great logical positivist or a great symbolic logician that you know that the very concept of an existing necessary being is impossible. And that, I hear, is a hobby of certain philosophers in this country. They've gone wild on analytic philosophy and symbolic logic as if this were the key to breaking open all those questions that have tormented the human race for thousands of years. Now, but the trouble is this, dear friends, that most evolutionists are atheists. I know there are some theistic evolutionists, and they are brave people. And I really understand fully their real concern. They were like me before my salvation from the Protestants, they are afraid that they will compromise their church, their reason, their sanity by seeming to believe in the flat earth theory of a creationist theory of, of the world so that they are honorable people trying to harmonize what they think to be the truths of science and what they believe to be the truths of religion and philosophy. And they claim that we could and can and will, please God, put together a new theory of, of theistic uh, creation, uh, uh, theistic evolution. But maybe so. I still say they are in a great minority. They've managed to keep no one happy. They don't keep the evolutionists happy because the evolutionists dismiss them with contempt. Okay, bring God along if you want, but it's like a little kid who insists on bringing his, his comic book to a spaceship because he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna direct the spaceship. All right, kid, bring him along. We've got our computers. We'll really do it. So that's what you seem 
those who, who with their hat in hand, uh, uh, ask science for a little platform to add their footnote, uh, they, they're like nuisances. And the creationists, on the other hand, don't really love the, the uh, the, theistic evolutionists. They, they're blasting them as if they're the enemy. So, so the poor theistic evolutionists are not too happy, but that doesn't prove they're wrong. It may, I mean, truth is quite different from popularity. However, I simply note this, that most evolutionists are atheists. I might add most people seem to me to be atheists. They're at least practical atheists, but very often they are committed, principled, uh, scientific atheists, or theoretical atheists also. And it's certainly the truth that every atheist is an evolutionist. I mean, imagine if you were an atheist today. You have to be an evolutionist. There's no other way, no matter how improbable your, your evolutionary fiction is, it's still the only way to explain any sort of harmony or unity or form. So if you're, if you're an atheist, you've got to be an evolutionist. If you're an evolutionist, you're most likely to be an atheist, or else you're a very lonely, uh, theistic evolutionist. Now, I think that this is why there was a book out, I think it's by Wallace Johnson, I, I have an impossibly bad memory, but it was, used to be called Why College Students Lose Their Faith. And then he renamed it. Uh, I forgot something else. But he quite rightly said that we have university, we've had universities since the Middle Ages, and every nutty theory has been advanced in every university. I mean, if you want to know what a madhouse is, come to university. Cicero said already, even just a philosophy, there's nothing so absurd, but that it will be taught by a philosopher. And I add, and we'll give you a degree for it, too. Just think of any nonsense, it comes from the university. But when was it that a university education almost necessarily equaled atheism? When was it that when young people of whatever background, went to university, the result was almost guaranteed to be a loss of faith and a loss of any conviction about transcendent God. I think now it is almost, it is almost a certainty. There are miracles of grace whereby someone can escape it. And is it that universities are, are plotting evil faculties? That's probably part of it. I mean, every, every, as I say, everything goes on in the university. But I find there's an awful lot of sincerity, a lot of intelligence, a lot of erudition. But the universities are permeated with a dogmatic evolutionism which simply takes for granted there is no God. That's their first principle, in no way provable by science. And then because they're absolutely certain there is no God, Everything else has to be explained naturalistically speaking, no matter how absurd the naturalistic uh, uh, theory would otherwise have been. And if I don't know much about languages, but I have a son who's a great linguist, and he thinks that evolution has destroyed the study of, of ancient language. That, that because we have all, you see, the evolutionists know that we all start out <coughs> grunting. And after a million years of grunting, we finally uh, create a noun or something like that, and, and so on. But then if you study real language and not fiction, it's just the opposite. But this blinding faith in evolution has destroyed serious scientific study of, of origins of language, and so too of cultures, 
and so too of everything else. So here's what I'm saying there. This thing is a distraction. The real point should be God, God's existence, the basis of religion. Even if you want honorably to deny that, there should be this momentous debate on God and atheism in philosophical religious terms. Instead, we're distracted. We've lulled ourselves to sleep. We simply, the most momentous question has been assumed to have been answered, namely in the negative, namely God does not exist, and then we fool around with Greek names and whether it's two million or one million or whether it's this process or that process. And then when the Catholics get into it, they, they play the same game they have, they, with their inferiority complex in the bargain. And more and more the entire atmosphere of learning, including so-called Catholic universities, so-called biblical uh, schools of biblical exegesis, seminaries and the like, the entire atmosphere of learning is secularistic naturalistic, anti-metaphysical, anti-theistic. So what should have been a mere distraction to be brushed aside is the victor. It has distracted us into atheism. It has distracted us into this hopeless worldview which alone makes intelligible the despair of the 20th century. Whitaker Chambers, a noble American, he was an ex-communist, he wrote a book which, if you want to know the best part of America, read his books. Don't just read Dick Tracy or, or John Dewey or, or whatever. Read Whitaker Chambers. He, uh, he wrote this book called Witness, and it was about his, his break with the Communist Party. He never believed in God, unfortunately. He was a Quaker of sorts, but never believed in God. But he suffered because of that. And he understood this world struggle, this economic and cultural struggle, not in terms of bankers and this and that. He understood in terms of the despair of the West. He knew the communists were wrong. He knew they were evil. But he said, nonetheless, they had a kind of dynamism in history because of conviction. Whereas he said, we in the West have nothing to live for and nothing to die for. And that exactly sums up the collapse of the West, which I say, humanly speaking, is inevitable. The one great note is, humanly speaking, is not the last word, first of all, and thanks to those two great Slavs, Solzhenitsyn and, and John Paul II, I don't think it's inevitable. But apart from that providential uh, invasion from the East, I say Whitaker Chambers would have been proved right. He still may be proved right. Maybe the work of the Slavs will bear fruit 500 years from now when we come up from the chains or whatever. But this, this is my last thought, therefore, which is not exactly on the question of evolution, but it's a consequence of the evolution mentality. The last point is this, is that the great question, God or no God, has been assumed answered in the negative. Because people dogmatically think it's answered in the negative, they accept uh, this is their single greatest proof for all their absurd transformism theories, which have no other basis in proof. There's no, if you ever investigate, uh, if you ever read these, these books by the Protestants and other people uh, about the, the scientific case for and against evolution, you'll realize that the phenomena are agreed on. We have bones. We have bones of different complexity. We all admit that. But 
the explanation of the phenomena is what is the sufficient explanation for the increasing complexity, and so on. And the evolutionists say, we know it's absurd. You can read this in all your textbooks, by the way. You want to know where this shows up. You don't have to go back to Darwin. Pick up a textbook, even at Catholic schools. Fordham, Fordham has no textbooks except evolutionary ones in the science courses. And the typical explanation is this. They say, we know that the odds against this protein combining with this thing in such a way are a trillion trillion to the trillionth power followed by a trillion zeros to one against it. But evolution beat the odds. Why? We're here. Yeah, I know we're here. We started with the datum. We're here. But there are two alternative explanations. The Lord God put me here or your crazy mathematical chance ended up putting me here. That's to be disputed, friend. But because you don't think there's the Lord God, you claim that the odds, however impossible, were beaten by evolution. That's the great petitio principi, the great begging of the question of evolution. But now my final point is this. That has caused enormous carnage and destruction in the minds and psyche and culture of our, of our times. That certainly the last 20 years, but I say the last 100 years, Dostoevsky already understood it when his characters were honorably discussing atheism in the universities and, and in the beer halls and all that. that. He knew, and he let his characters show you the great drama of God versus no God. And that drama has been played and played and played. And the denouement is here. And it seems as if God is dead certainly from human consciousness. And does that make a difference? Well, most people thought it makes not really no difference at all. That uh, everything's here. We still have baseball. We still have good food. We have the common market. We have taxes. We have gout. Uh, so, so we don't have God. Well, we'll get some other idol uh, to do it. We always can have a football star to be an idol. Friends, that's for a while. But the crucial point of whether life is absurd or not is rooted on whether God exists, that personal God exists. If the personal God exists, everything is meaningful. The beauty in nature, the fact that we are made male and female, what a mystery. Death, birth, all these things are deeply meaningful because we know a rational, conscious God summoned these things into existence and he ordered them in wisdom. But if God does not exist, we are this absurd product of mindlessness. Bertrand Russell understood this perfectly. He was an honorable atheist. And he even wrote his own obituary, I suppose. You know, 20 years before he died, he didn't want any bungler to ruin it. So he wrote his own obituary that was supposed to have been printed when he died. And his obituary was just this despairing message. And, and the sense of it was this. I'm not about to have false hope that after I die I'll see God or there's meaning. No, no. After endless ages of meaningless flux and waxing of matter and energy, this planet Earth was coughed into being. This absurdity of male and female was here. And I, Bertrand, saw the light for a few days and I vanished. And friends, 
when this is the underlying bass note, the metaphysics, the philosophy of a university from its the theology department right down to its, its history department, of course we have nothing to live for and nothing to die for. Now that doesn't mean, I please note this, I don't say therefore evolution is false. I'm not an American pragmatist like William James saying that simply because a theory cheers me, it's true, and if it doesn't cheer me, it's false. But I'm simply saying this overwhelming problem of atheism is directly linked to the collapse of the West, of, of our culture, in every part of the Western Hemisphere, and our religion has suffered enormously as a consequence of it. And if it were not for the, the pseudo-scientific trappings of evolution, we at least could have this final debate. The forces of God, the philosophers, the theologians, the historians would marshal up rational evidence for their side. The atheists would marshal up evidence for their side, and we could meet on our way. But evolution, the great distraction, swirls in, causes us to dismiss the central problem, and then we chat, and the darkness falls, and we're in despair. I think it's very appropriate for me to close with a sobering thought from St. Paul. I agree this is scripture, but I think it throws light because this is a scriptural reference to human reason and atheism. This is the epistle to the Romans, 1.19.26. And I think it sums up or, or helps to sum up this twilight of hope which we, we experience based on atheism. The knowledge of God is clear to their minds. God himself has made it clear to them. From the foundations of the world, men have caught sight of his invisible nature, his eternal power and his divineness, as they are known through his creatures. Thus there is no excuse for them. Although they had the knowledge of God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him as God. They became fantastic in their notions, and their senseless hearts grew benighted. They who claimed to be so wise turned fools, and they exchanged the glory of the imperishable God. For what? Listen to these fossil ancestors. For representations of perishable man, of bird and beast and reptile. Thank <laughs> you.